This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for May 18th, 2018. This episode is brought to you by SellYourMac.com. SellYourMac.com will give you cash for your used Apple computers and devices. And keep listening for an extra special offer for Intego Mac Podcast listeners. In this week's episode, tips on how to delete your history from social media accounts for security and privacy reasons. Plus, eFail is a newly discovered hack that attacks through email. How does it work and who's vulnerable? Apple may have to deal with a class action lawsuit over keyboard malfunctions. We'll have the details. The Intego Mac Podcast is presented by Intego, makers of security and utility software exclusively for Apple products since 1997. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. I learned a new word this week, Josh. E-fail. Yeah, it sounds like a, an internet meme or something. It does, yeah. What about you? Do you hear Yanny or Laurel? <laughs> oh, boy. I hear Laurel. So do I. I have no idea how anyone can hear Yanny or Yammy. Exactly. I was just saying that to someone yesterday. But what about e-fail? What is it? As, as you say, it could be an internet meme, like some funny little dog or a grumpy cat or something, but it's not. Yeah, they're, they're exploiting the word fail, I guess, which is has become popular in the past several years because of hashtag fail, you know, or epic fail. But e-fail is a new attack that's that's been announced, an attack on a standard of email security. We, we should talk about what email security really means because there's not a lot of inherent security in email. No, most email is sent in plain text. Very few people encrypt their email. Anyone who's sniffing on a Wi-Fi network or who gets access to a server can read your email, which is why we always tell people don't ever send sensitive information like passwords or or credit card numbers or, you know, those photos that you only show to your significant other over email. Yeah, and I I even tell people don't scan a document that contains your social security number or don't scan your birth certificate or something and email it to somebody. Because again, it's 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 something that um, when it's sitting on a server somewhere, there's no encryption at all by default. So one of the ways that people have tried to improve the security of email is by tacking on some additional encryption. And so there's there's a couple of big standards for that. There's SMIME and there's open PGP or, or um, other PGP variants. So PGP stands for pretty good privacy. And this is a, a standard that's been around for many years. It's, it's been owned by many different companies. Um, Symantec currently owns the rights to it and they've kind of practically killed the product. Um, unfortunately, but there are open versions of it. There's, uh, there's open PGP on the Mac, especially there's GPG, (laughs) which stands for new privacy guard. And it's kind of a little bit of a play on PGP, which stands for pretty good privacy. You know, when, when I first heard that name 20 years ago, if not more, my, my thought was, that's not very good marketing. I don't want pretty good privacy. I want ironclad privacy. <laughs> right. Well, and and to be fair, I mean, I think the creator of PGP was just being humble, really, because PGP is, uh, well, and, and its successors have been um, a, a good standard overall. Um, it uses public key cryptography, which is the, the idea where you have 
a, uh, a private key that you keep, and that's what you use to decrypt messages that are sent to you. And then you have a public key, which you share with everybody so that they can encrypt messages that they send to you, and then only you can decrypt them with your private key. So that's essentially how the concept of public key cryptography works, and PGP or GPG is, is a standard based on public key cryptography. So it's a way that basically somebody can encrypt the contents of an email and send that to you. And in theory, no one else should be able to decrypt that. Okay, so e-fail apparently is a situation where something is broken, right? Yes. And th this is really kind of a clever attack. Well, first of all, I should say that most email programs will load remote content. Uh, a lot of them do it by default. So if you've got Apple Mail, depending on how you've got your, your, your mail program configured, it will either automatically load remote content. So for example, if there's images embedded in an email that are located on some server, it loads them from that server, just like if you were going to a web page. Right, and, and those images aren't necessarily attached to the email itself, but if someone makes an HTML email, such as the Intego Max Security Newsletter, it may contain graphics that are stored on a server someplace. You can turn that setting off in Apple Mail, go into Preferences, Viewing, and uncheck Load Remote Content in Messages. I leave it on in Mail, but I turn it off on my iOS devices because of sometimes it just makes it too slow to download emails when I'm not on my home Wi-Fi network. And for security reasons, <laughs> I, I leave that off all the time because I don't like the idea. Of course you do, Josh. <laughs> I don't like the idea of some email that I'm getting from who knows who to, you know, automatically load some content from the internet. Again, I'm the kind of guy who uses a JavaScript blocker in Firefox so, so that breaks the entire, you know, web practically just so that I can have a little bit more security by default. Hey, we need people like you. You're like the canary in the coal mine. There you go. Yeah. So, so the idea behind this is that uh, these uh, researchers discovered that it was actually really simple to basically just create an image tag. So if you if you've ever looked at the source code of a web page, you notice that you've got things like open angle bracket IMG space and then SRC equals uh, and then an, an address for an image. So that, that would be an example of an image tag in, in HTML. And what they found was that you can um, set up these boundaries in, uh, in the email. The, these are hidden from the user, but they're just kind of ways that the email client, uh, the application that you're using can know how to treat the different sections of the email. So, so what they do is they start an image tag and then you've got your encrypted blob, um, which really, it just looks like a bunch of gobbledygook and unless you've got a program that can decrypt it. And then they have another boundary and then they close that image tag. And the idea behind this is that if you've got a, an affected email client or an affected decrypting program built that's attached to your email client, then what'll happen is in theory, it will decrypt this blob and put it into plain text. And now because your email client thinks that this is actually the address for an image, it's gonna to try to load that from the internet. And what it's really doing is it's sending the attacker the contents of your email when they get decrypted on your computer, they're automatically going to get sent off to this attacker. 
It's a very clever idea. If I understand correctly, when we were talking about firewalls in a recent episode, we explained that when your Mac initiates a connection to an external server, that server can respond and then get back in. Is that what's happening here? This is kind of like a Trojan horse? Yeah, but you could think of it that way. Essentially, your mail program is kind of doing something wrong or what, what we would consider wrong, although it seems to be sort of a default behavior a lot of times. But what it's trying to do is it's only trying to do its job and just load, you know, it's trying to decrypt your your encrypted message and it's trying to load a remote image. And it doesn't realize that what it's actually doing is sending the unencrypted contents to some server. So who's who is affected by this? Who needs to worry? I don't use encryption in my email, so do I not need to worry? You definitely do not need to worry about this. If you're the kind of person that does not use PGP or SMIME, you know, if if there if nobody's sending you encrypted messages that you've got to decrypt on your computer, you don't really need to worry about this. Okay, and if you do encrypt your email, what's the fix? Yeah. Well, that's a little tricky. <laughs> so, because I've been reading a lot of people saying that this really isn't a big deal and you shouldn't worry about it. Yeah. Well, the simplest answer is that for now, until Apple and other companies that make email client software have done things to sort of prevent this type of attack from happening. And until they've released patches for this to, to mitigate this attack, you may want to consider turning off that automatic decryption functionality. And you may even want to just copy and paste that blob and decrypt it with a separate application rather than having it automatically decrypted in your mail program. You know, and incidentally, I have to bring this up because we've talked about Facebook recently, but the only encrypted emails that I get on a regular basis are actually from Facebook. Did you know that you can actually give Facebook your public key, your PGP key, and they will encrypt all messages that they send to you. What, what sort of messages? Do you get notifications from Facebook? Oh, yeah. Well, it's stupid things, mostly like, you know, oh, so-and-so, you know, wants to be friends with you. But instead right, of, okay. yeah, instead of seeing that, what it will actually happen is it'll give me um, sort of an obscured subject for the email. And then it'll be this encrypted PGP blob in the body of the email. Yeah. And then you, what do you do? You just click a button to, to decrypt it. Exactly, right. And some people have that as a, a default option to just automatically decrypt any new emails that come in. Okay, so if, if Josh isn't worried about it, I think most people don't need to worry about <laughs> well, it. Well, yeah, and, and, and the biggest part of this is that almost nobody really encrypts anything in email. Nobody does this, really. Well, exactly. But this wasn't uncommon 15, 20 years ago. When I worked as a translator, I had a couple of clients who wanted files encrypted and rightly so because they were sending you know confidential documents to me by email for translation i was sending them back and it's true email is relatively easy to intercept so it does make sense but of course now we have so many other ways to transmit documents i mean if you use dropbox that's relatively safe there are ways you can make an encrypted disk image i'll put a link in the show notes to an article about making an encrypted disk image it's an easy way to put files in an encrypted wrapper that no one can get into except for the person to whom you get give the password to. And don't send them the password by email. <laughs> Please don't, yeah. <laughs> okay, in other news, there is yet another class action lawsuit against Apple. But I think this one is kind of interesting, and I wanted to mention it because uh, I'm curious if any of our listeners have had trouble with their MacBook keyboards. Apple 
change the design of their keyboards from a scissor design to a butterfly design a couple years ago. So the scissor or butterfly mechanism is the, the element that's under the key in the keyboard, that when you press, it, it goes down. Back in the old days, back in the old days, when I was young, early keyboards had springs in them. They had literal little springs. And I think you can still buy what are called mechanical keyboards today that have springs and, and a different sort of like a plastic post with a spring on it that goes down and makes contact with something. So the interest in these newer keyboards is they're much thinner and lighter, and I find them much easier to type on. But a lot of people have had problems, and some people, if the computer is out of warranty, they find that it costs them hundreds of dollars to repair a keyboard just because a speck of dust got into it. It really a speck of dust. Is it that is it that bad of a problem? I, I I'm pretty skeptical about this. Well, see, this is the thing. There there is some anecdotal evidence and there are some people who have been writing about this and talking about this a lot on social media. And you know, I'm sure you've heard the expression the plural of anecdote is not data. So <laughs> it's really hard to know how often this happens. And is this lawsuit really valid? Are there thousands of people. Apparently, there's a petition that has 17,000 signatures, but yeah, a lot of people might just sign up because they don't like Apple or because they're not happy with their MacBook. So the reason that these things come up so often is because Apple has deeper pockets than practically any company in the entire world. So if, if you're going to sue somebody, it might as well be Apple. Now, of course, Apple also has, you know, deep pockets. And so therefore they can afford better lawyers. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think it's, it's worth the gamble to, to a lot of uh, people who um, like to engage in somewhat frivolous lawsuits. Well, one <laughs> of the other things is it brings up an issue that we discussed some time ago about right to repair. These things are so hard to repair that you can only do it through Apple at Apple's prices. You can't buy the components separately and change it yourself. It might not be easy to do, but I think this is just a, a sort of a, a reaction to all of the repair issues and warranty issues. What's interesting is that here in the UK, there is technically a six-year warranty on anything you buy. Even if the one-year statutory warranty is up and the three-year Apple Care warranty is up, if you've got Apple Care, I had a problem last year just after my previous iMac went out of Apple Care, and there was something that might have been wrong, and it turned out not to be wrong. And the Apple Care person I spoke to on the phone said, "Don't worry about it. We'll fix it up to six years." And I said, yeah, I was worried because Apple cares run out. And this is this is a consumer law that's very very specific to the UK. I think in the in the European Union, it's a two or three year thing. And in the States, it's really limited to that one year statutory warranty. I, and I, of course, I don't mean to minimize this. If anyone does have this challenge or, or knows somebody who does, please write in and tell us about it. We, we'd love to hear from you. Okay, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about deleting your history on social media, something probably a lot of people would like to do. Would you like a chance to win $100? We've set up a survey and we'd like you to answer some questions about the podcast, what you like about it, what you'd like us to talk about. There's a link in the show notes. And if you go there, it's only a few questions. It'll take a few minutes and you'll be entered in a drawing to win $100. Your old Apple device is probably worth some money, but it can be a big hassle trying to resell your own equipment. SellYourMac.com makes it fast, safe, and easy to make money from your used Mac desktops and laptops, iPhones, and iPads. SellYourMac.com pays top dollar for your used Apple products. Come on, you've probably got some old gear you've been meaning to do something with. Are you going to just let it sit there and collect dust, or are you going to collect some cash? 
The best way to find out how much money you can make right now is to go to SellYourMac.com and enter your product's details. They'll give you an offer instantly. SellYourMac.com even provides you a free prepaid shipping label. Then all you have to do is send them the device. Once they receive it and processing begins, you'll quickly get a check in the mail or payment via PayPal. Tens of thousands of satisfied customers have made extra cash selling their used equipment to SellYourMac.com. And you should too. It's fast, it's safe, and it's easy. And here's a special offer. Go to SellYourMac.com slash Intego and you'll get a $10 bonus on items worth $25 or more. Go to SellYourMac.com slash Intego and start cashing in on your old Apple gear. SellYourMac.com slash Intego. As I mentioned before the break, we're going to talk about deleting your social media history. But first, just a brief bit of news that came out the other day. Facebook announced that they closed 583 million fake accounts in the first three months of 2018. 583 million fake accounts. That's a lot. Now, hasn't Facebook said that they have 2 billion users? And this means that more than 25% of their users are fake accounts? Well, yeah, I, I don't know whether they're including those 583 million in that in that you know, in that number, but, uh, that's, that's a lot of fake accounts. Like how did, they, how is it even possible that there are that many fake accounts in three months? Well, there must, there must be some way to automate this. Yeah. Otherwise I can't see how it's possible. Now I'll, I'll link in the show notes to an article in the guardian. And what's interesting is that the guardian made a very strange conflation of statistics because Facebook also announced that they dealt with 837 million pieces of spam and then in a graphic, The Guardian says Facebook took moderation action against almost 1.5 billion accounts and posts that violated its community standards. That's a very strange way to conflate those two numbers. Accounts and posts are so extremely different. The initial version of this article did not say accounts and posts. And, and The Guardian has a bad habit of not putting a little note at the bottom saying a previous version of this article said, and we corrected it. But initially, they just said accounts. And they were lumping in 837 million pieces of spam with fake accounts. And that actually made the initial article seem like three quarters of Facebook's accounts were fake. <laughs> but that's a lot of fake accounts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, it doesn't say that 583 million fake accounts were created in the first three months of 2018. Maybe a lot of these are dormant accounts that Facebook finally got around to dealing with. Exactly. And that's why I was thinking, if they talk about 2 billion users, how long have these accounts been used and you know what effect is this going to have on facebook's numbers speaking of facebook i came to a decision a few months ago that i wanted to remove my old facebook posts and my old tweets you know we've been reading all about the way your data gets collected and everything and i realized you know this social media stuff is forever if you don't delete it we we've been using facebook for a long time what did it go general public in 2008 2009 so it's about 10 years but this is only a period for our age. We're not teenagers or in high school or college or whatever. We weren't when we started. When you think of someone growing up now, if they're putting their life onto Facebook and onto Twitter, in 10 or 20 years, there is an extraordinary record of their life. And I don't know about you, Josh, I did some things when I was a teenager that I wouldn't want remembered, particularly if I'm going for job interviews or going to buy a house or things like that. I didn't break the law, but, you know, we all do things when we're kids that we're not proud of, right? Maybe you did. I, I've always been perfect. Ah. <laughs> okay. 
One point for you, Josh. <laughs> In any case, I wrote an article for the Intego Max security blog explaining how to do this. Now, neither of these companies make it easy for you to delete your content. And starting with Twitter, one of the reasons is that apps can generally only access the 3,200 most recent tweets that you've posted. Now, when I started this process of deleting tweets, I had about 60,000. Yeah, that's way too many tweets. Don't follow me on Twitter. Really, not worth it. But I realized for me, Twitter, Twitter is a water cooler. Facebook is like a newsletter, right, to your friends and family. But Twitter's a water cooler. It's like during the day, you know, you say something, you react to something, you, you converse with people you know sometimes. And I just didn't want to keep all that. There are a number of apps that claim to be able to delete tweets, and some of them are iOS apps, and some of them are services you sign up in a web browser. And most of them don't really work. They can only get those 3,200 tweets. But I found one called Cardigan, which is free. And what's interesting is it can delete all of your tweets, no matter how old they are, if you first download all your tweets from Twitter. Twitter lets you download an archive of tweets if you go into your settings. And I explain the process in the article. So you, you request this archive and you download it. It takes about 10 or 15 minutes. They send you an email and a link and you download it. Then you go to this website, gocardigan.com, you upload the archive, and in that way, that app can read all of your tweets. Now, wh what I did essentially is, the first thing I did is I went back and deleted the first year of all my tweets. And that was easy because I wasn't using Twitter very much, and it takes a couple minutes uh, because you can sort by date, you can choose all tweets, replies, or retweets, and you select a group of tweets and you delete, and it takes a while. And what this app is actually doing is sending Twitter a request, an individual request for each tweet saying, delete this tweet and confirming the deletion. You don't see this in the interface. It all happens in the background. It took quite some time. It, it took, I was doing it a year at a time. And when I got up to recent years, when there were like 10,000 tweets a year, it took overnight to delete that many tweets. Now, Josh, you don't use Twitter very often. Are you at all concerned about what you said a few years ago on Twitter? Well, I I mean, I actually do use Twitter pretty regularly, but I just don't tweet a lot. I, I'm, right. I, I mostly use it as kind of a, um, a, a way to get my news, I guess you could say. Um, I, yes. I, especially security news. I follow a lot of you know people who write about security and things like that. I don't know. I mean, I, I have a couple of times, I think, gone back to like my very first, you know, tweet just out of curiosity to see what what I was doing with Twitter in like 2007 or whatever it was. I don't know that I necessarily want those things deleted for me personally, which is funny because, again, I, I, I totally get the idea that maybe there were some things that you wrote back then that Oh, could be embarrassing. You know, what if somebody is, you know, looking you up and they go all the way back to the beginning of your tweet timeline and maybe you had different political views back then or maybe you overshared back then. Or or maybe you said something bad about Intego and then you're planning to go on a job interview with Intego. You don't want them to find out about that. Oh, yeah. No, that's a good point. Yeah. I was just commenting something about semantic a little while ago. I don't want to get in trouble. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. I wonder if we should beep that out. Yeah, yeah. Mm, we'll ask our producer Let's not include um, to see what he thinks. <laughs> but what I've done now is every month or so when I think of it, I go back and delete all my tweets older than two weeks or so. Because really, for me, Twitter is much more ephemeral than Facebook is. Now, Facebook is a bit different because uh, I use Facebook primarily for Facebook groups. 
I'm in a number of photography groups where people share photos and ask for tips and talk about photography gear. I'm in a British short hair cat group because we have two British short hair cats and I like looking at cat photos. And sometimes you're asking a question, what's a good food for British short hairs and things like that. I'm a fan of the Grateful Dead. And if you know what the Grateful Dead is, you know that we are fans for our entire lives. So people talk about Grateful Dead music. So I use these groups a lot and these are private discussions. They're not publicly available. And that doesn't really bother me too much. But then there's other things where you share a photo of where you've been and or you talk about someplace you went. And it just it just builds up a data set about you. And that data set is very different on Facebook than it is on Twitter. I've never allowed my location to be used on Twitter, whereas on Facebook, sometimes your location can be figured out because you've been talking about, well, I went to this restaurant and I'm on vacation in this city and things like that. Deleting Facebook is a bit more complicated than Twitter because, well, they don't want you to do this. They really don't want to make it easy. But at least with Twitter, there's just a long timeline. In Facebook, and again, check the article that's in the show notes, there are, I believe, there's something like 25 different categories of types of posts that you need to delete. You can't just say delete everything. And obviously, they only let you do it one at a time. So I found a plugin for the Chrome browser called Social Book Post Manager. And I think they can't use the word Facebook in the name, which is why they call it Social Book Post Manager. And essentially, what you do is you go to the different parts on Facebook of your activity, such as photos and videos, likes and reactions, comments, posts, etc. And you select a year and a month, or you select all the months, and you select a speed, because what this is going to do is simulate you clicking on the little menu button that hovers when you move your cursor over an item, clicking delete, and then confirming it. So this is something that takes a while. It took several days to get through this. It's not that there was a lot of posts. It's just the process is a lot slower, and you have to keep going through the different sections. And sometimes the way this app works, it doesn't get everything the first time. So sometimes you have to go through it again. But it was relatively easy, just arduous, and a bit time-consuming to delete all my Facebook history. Wow, that seems really complicated. Well, we would like these companies to have a one-button delete system or delete everything prior to this date or delete everything of the year 2016 or 2015 or whatever. But they don't want to. This is how they make money is from your data. So they, they have to make it complicated. Again, do you really want to do this? You know, I, I see some people... I moderate a couple of groups on Facebook and every once in a while someone asks to join a group and they look suspicious. They look like spammers. So you click their profile to see whether they are or not. And sometimes they're not, but their entire profile is public. Now, this is a settings thing in Facebook. I don't do this. I don't leave everything public. But when you do that, anyone can see, you know, what you've done, where you've been, who your family is. And you know, I just think of the most obvious thing. Oh, here's a picture of me on my vacation in Guadalupe. And meanwhile, someone who's been stalking you knows you're not home and goes to burglarize your house. Right, right. I, I find that a lot, too. Um, I somehow became a moderator of a couple of groups on Facebook. And so every once in a while, I'll scroll through the requests to join the community and I can see an awful lot of information about some of these people that I have absolutely no connection with at all. A lot of people do really overshare, and a lot of people, I'm sure, who overshare have no idea that they're doing it. Well, I think people are naively trusting that this is a private forum. The Facebook as a whole 
whereas it is public by default. You do have to change a setting to not share all your information. Although maybe when you sign up, you're, you get a dialogue asking if you want it to be public. I mean, it's been so long since I signed up, and they've certainly changed the process since then. But people do share too much. In any case, these two tools will let you go back and scrub your social media history if you so desire. You know, it's funny. A lot of young people used to use Facebook, and then they stopped because their parents use it a lot. My son, who's 27, he never used Facebook except for a short period of time when he was in a group with his fellow students in university. And he just doesn't want to be involved in this sort of thing. He's very reticent about sharing that kind of information. But as you say, you know, some people, they're talking about all sorts of things. And and in particular, one thing that's worth noting is Facebook. I, I do some work for a health-related charity in the States. I do some editing work for them. And they used to run a forum on a on their website and most of the activity has moved over to a Facebook group because it's a lot easier for people to use Facebook. They don't have to sign in, remember a password for a specific forum. They know how to use the interface and all that. There are an awful lot of health related groups where people are talking about serious health conditions. And this is not the kind of information you necessarily want to be made public. You may not want your boss to know about it, your insurance company, you may not want them to know about it. So there is a lot of personal information that can be on Facebook. And it's worth, even if you don't delete everything, maybe go to Facebook and think about what you're sharing and try to figure out if you really need to share all this. Right. And I think there actually are on Facebook some ways that you can see how other people can see your profile. So you can simulate, you know, um, some random person, you know, and, and see what they would see if they encountered your profile. Yes, that's possible. But I'm not sure most people know about it. Again, Facebook makes their settings section of the website so incredibly complex with 25 or 30 top level topics and each time you click one of them there's another 10 or 20 and we talked about this some time ago when we were talking about the privacy settings <laughs> which they've changed since then by the way well they've changed them they change them all the time so anytime you do find an article on the web talking about how to do something like that if you go three months or six months later things will have changed and even facebook doesn't update its its documentation in any case, if anyone wants to do this, check it out. It's a good way to get rid of some of your past. If not, just keep on sharing, and then we're going to look into you and see what you've all shared and find out the secrets of your, your hidden life. Stay secure, Josh. All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, sponsored by SellYourMac.com. You can get a $10 bonus on items worth $25 or more. Go to SellYourMac.com slash Intego and start cashing in on your old Apple gear. Be sure to get every episode of the Intego Mac podcast by subscribing at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on Intego security and utility software. Intego.com. <laughs>